Dear Father, please be with us just now as we think about a book that describes the sacrificial system, how your death relates to that, and what you are doing as our high priest. And help us to understand these things that some of the symbols would become very plain and very real to us. Amen. Well, I thought it was uh, interesting here, and we could talk about so much, like who wrote the book of Hebrews, and there's a lot of discussion about that. Most people believe that it was Paul and Luke. So Paul dictated it perhaps to Luke, because some of the language sounds uh, very uh, familiar for the way Luke would write. But it's interesting, if you go to the very end, it concludes, I beg you, my friends, to listen patiently to this message of encouragement. For this letter I have written you is not very long. And actually, if you just sit down and you read it through, it'd be not a long thing to do um, in, in a couple hours. And um, so, and remember, we talked about with Romans how the books would come in a scroll, and these kinds of books should be read through as a whole. Because so many of the problem verses, as you go through, if you just keep reading, you go back and explain uh, some of the difficult verses. But let's start out here at the beginning, Hebrews 1.1. And the first several chapters of Hebrews really um, declare who Jesus was. Okay, and it's interesting how Paul makes his argument here. He says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors at many different times and in many different ways through the prophets. So in other words, the whole Old Testament, God has revealed himself in many different ways. But in his last days, he's spoken to us through his son. God made his son responsible for everything. His Son is the one through whom God made the universe. His Son is the reflection of God's glory and the exact likeness of God's being. How do you interpret that verse there? His Son is the reflection of God's glory, the exact likeness of God's being. They're the same in what way? Every way. Physically, would you say? We've seen Jesus' hand. We've seen the hand of God. I agree. They're the same in every way. I think if we tried to make the case that God's glory is ultimately Jesus wasn't bright and he wasn't intimidating in power, but ultimately it's his character. If we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. They're exactly the same in character in every way. And he holds everything together through his powerful words. After he had cleansed people from their sins, he received the highest position the one next to the Father in heaven. And what Hebrews will go on to describe is what is Jesus doing as our high priest to cleanse the sin problem? So this is kind of it in a summary. But now, um, here's where if we just stop at a verse, we can get uh, troubled, I think. But Paul is trying to identify to his audience, and many of them, I think, didn't really know who Jesus was or weren't convinced, who he is. First he says, the son was made greater than the angels. Um, That can be made greater, created being. What does that mean? But we have to read on. He was made greater than the angels, just as the name that God gave him is greater than theirs. For God never said to any of his angels, you are my son, today I've become your father. Nor did God say about any angel, I will be his father and he will be my son. But when God was about to send his firstborn son into the world, he said, all of God's angels must worship him. And the significance of that, so he's made greater than an angel, and then we read on, all of God's angels must worship him. And the significance of that is, are we ever to worship anything that's created? 
You know, if, if Romans 1 very specifically says we don't worship creatures, things that God has made. So this statement here, all of God's angels must worship him, is a statement of divinity of Christ. He's none other than God. But about the angels, God said, God makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire. Okay, now listen to how he goes on to clarify. About the sun, however, God said, now quoting the Psalms, your kingdom, O God, will last forever and ever. Isn't this kind of interesting? Who would this be? About the son, however, God, that would be the father, said, about the son, your kingdom, O God, will last forever and ever. Declaring that the son is God. The father said about the son, God the father, God the son, your kingdom will last forever and ever. You rule over your people with justice. You love what is right and hate what is wrong. That is why God, your God, there it is again, has chosen you and has given you the joy of an honor far greater than he gave to your companions. He also said, you, Lord, in the beginning created the earth. Okay, Jesus made the earth. And with your own hands you made the heavens. They will disappear, but you will remain. They will all wear out like clothes. You will fold them up like a coat. And they will be changed like clothes, but you are always the same. And your life never ends. So, can we take this whole passage... And it becomes clear, Paul is trying to make the point that this meek and mild and gentle one was actually God. Okay, now skipping ahead a little bit, uh, as he describes further who Jesus was, now he describes his great humility and condescension. But we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, and we think about God in heaven becoming you know, one cell inside a teenage virgin. That's pretty incredible who for a little while was made lower than the angels, so that through God's grace he should die for everyone. We see him now crowned with glory and honor because of the death he suffered. It was only right that God, who creates and preserves all things, should make Jesus perfect through suffering in order to bring many children to share in his glory. For Jesus is the one who leads them to salvation. He purifies people from their sins. And both he and those who are made pure all have the same father. All right, so God in his great condescension becomes a human. Um, but what, what I wanted to just ask you about here is, what does it mean? God comes and uh, the one who creates and preserves all things should make Jesus perfect through suffering. Um, I don't know if any of you have other translations of that verse in uh, Hebrews 2.10, but um, was Jesus ever not perfect? Or what, is, what would it mean to be made? To be made perfect would almost imply that he wasn't always perfect. But uh, how would you interpret that? Kevin, do you have another yeah. translation of that? Any thoughts about this verse? I mean, I think, would we ever say that Jesus wasn't perfect? Okay, I think he's not saying he was not perfect and then he was made perfect. So is there any, uh, any other way of understanding this? How did the suffering that Jesus went through uh, somehow relate to his own maturity or development? Or what do you think the point Paul is trying to make here? Right, I think it's, it's all for us. And I think his, his example, uh, and, and, and to, to just emphasize the point that you made there, what is the result of Jesus going through this life of suffering and being made perfect? Well, in order to bring many children to share his glory, if God's glory is his gracious character, we are to share that glory. 
he leads us to salvation. Remember, salvation, like a salve, is healing. Uh, he purifies and he makes pure. It has to do with our change. And so I think exactly right. Now, I think the other way we could maybe look at this is, um, well, let's just say at age five, do you think Jesus had a complete knowledge of the plan of salvation and all of the issues involved and uh, the nature of sin and rebellion and the great controversy in heaven? And uh, um, do you think he knew that at age five? Age 10? 15? I mean, at, at what point did he come into all... And of course, Jesus said many times, I don't know, the Father knows things like, you know, when, when the second coming would be. So I think uh, Jesus himself, God in the flesh, went through a growth and a process of maturation, but it was to be our example. And uh, so I think a way we could look at it is here, just the development of an apple, which starts out as a bud. Now, would you say that, that this is perfect? Yeah, it's perfect. It's not a mature fruit, but it is perfect. And of course, the bud grows and make a big deal out of this here, but eventually the flower comes at what, you know, fully mature, finally, and, and maybe I shouldn't make too many theological parallels here, but the flower dies, and then what happens here? We get a fruit and finally a mature apple. Okay, so the, the whole perfect at every stage, but yet not fully mature, from day one. Absolutely. And don't you think, uh, like the temptations in the wilderness, you know, turn this stone into bread, where he, um, I think, uh, not that he hadn't seen it before, but it became very clear that this temptation to use his own power to for selfish reasons, and look at that heightened temptation on the cross, right? If you're the son of God, not now turn the stone into bread, but if you're the son of God, come down from the cross, and now we'll believe. You know? And so I think it was very much reinforced all the way through his life, the principles of his kingdom, the principles of Satan's kingdom, fully matured and understand, understood by Jesus. But I wanted to go back here. So, so he became perfect through suffering. He's our example. I mean, we suffer, don't we, in this world? We want to mature. But the, the point here we talked about, in order, why did he do this? To bring many children to share his glory, character, and uh, the words here, again, why did he do this? To lead them to salvation. Now, of course, salvation, we tend to think of mainly in terms of being in heaven, being saved, but uh, as we've said several times, the word salvation, salve, heal, it's to made whole, unbroken. He purifies people. He changes people. He makes pure. All of these words through the Bible that we are to have a new heart, a right spirit, uh, we read this in, in Romans here last time, but notice, same wording. So we are happy as we look forward to sharing in the glory of God. What does that mean to share in the glory of God? Well, we read on, but that's not all. We gladly suffer. This is the same thing. We gladly suffer because we know that suffering helps us to endure and endurance builds character. It's the very same subject. Christ suffered. He is our example. We are to share in the glory of God. We suffer in this life of sin. But what is that, as we go through this, trusting in God, it is to build a Christ-like character. Same point. Okay, and again, uh, another one we read in Romans, don't conform yourself to the standards of this world, but let God transform you inwardly by a complete change of your mind. And so um, what I've seen, just coming out 
dozens and dozens of times just this week going through Romans and Hebrews is that so much God not so much wants to cover us, but he wants inside to work out a change that we develop a character that is Christ-like. Okay, going on here in Hebrews. Since all of these sons and daughters have flesh and blood, Jesus took on flesh and blood to be like them. He did this so that by dying, he would destroy the one who had power over death, that is, the devil. In this way, he would free those who were slaves all their lives because they were afraid of dying. Now, we could spend a long time just verse by verse, but uh, could we say in a nutshell, or, or how would we synthesize this, how did the death of Jesus destroy Satan? Was Satan destroyed at the cross? Or how could we... He lives on, right? But yet he was destroyed. Uh, in what way was Satan destroyed at the cross? Yeah, I agree. It was the idea was destroyed. And the idea, as we could uh, you know, spend the whole rest of the, the time talking about here, is the lie. I like the versions, he is the father of the lie, singular. And the lie is about the kind of person God is. And if we view the cross as a revelation of what God is like, can you believe God to be a vengeful, harsh, arbitrary, severe, punishing deity if you've just watched him allow his children to put him to death? So that lie is completely destroyed by the death of Christ. And I think that is, that is ultimately, it was a destruction of the, those uh, very, very damaging lies about who God is. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I think that's why, uh, like the verses in Colossians, where Christ died for angels who were sinless. And so when we think about what happened up in heaven, where the, the whole problem began in the first place, and we know those angels were right there, and uh, any sympathy that uh, there could have been for Satan at that point, I mean, was completely gone. So I think from a universal standpoint, that's how we can take those verses which suggest that Jesus died for angels, is there was no sympathy for Satan's side after the cross. And that's why when we read on in books like Revelation, that's where the angels are all, you know, you are worthy and honor and glory, and it's because of what he did in his life and death. And that is the whole rest of the book of Hebrews. What is Christ doing as our high priest? You know, he left and he said, I'll send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come to convict you of truth. And the message of Hebrews is Christ as our high priest is now trying to convince us. What is the cleansing of the temple? Who is the temple? I mean, he's trying to, uh, to cleanse and to purify our minds and uh, to, to rid us of that lie. Well, here a little bit later on, just in Hebrews 2. Therefore, it was necessary for Jesus to be in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. He then could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and temptation, he is able to help us when we are being tempted. How do you see Jesus, his suffering and temptation? How does that, how does that help you when you're being tempted? Could be seen in a couple different ways. Um, he suffered. He was tempted. It's interesting. Can God be tempted? James says God cannot be tempted. Jesus, we know, was tempted. God in human form was tempted. Does that help you when you're being tempted? 
Yeah, if God had just said, love your enemies, and okay, but here we see him on the cross dying, being killed, and loving his enemies, I think that makes it easier for us to, we admire that ideal, to actually live that way ourselves. Yeah, now we'll come back to this because it's said even stronger here in just a little bit. Um, But in Hebrews 3, my Christian friends, who also have been called by God, think of Jesus, whom God sent to be the high priest of the faith we profess. He was faithful to God, who chose him to do this work, just as Moses was faithful in his work in God's house, in God's temple. A man who builds a house receives more honor than the house itself. In the same way, Jesus is worthy of much greater honor than Moses. Every house, of course, is built by someone, and God is the one who has built all things. Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant, and he spoke of the things that God would say in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son in charge of God's house. Now notice, we are his house. And this is the same as we'll discuss in Corinthians. We are the temple of God. We are his house if we keep up our courage and our confidence in what we hope for. And um, I think maybe not until we get to the book of Ephesians will we really go through this. But this whole idea about a house, a temple, we are the temple that needs to be cleansed is not just Daniel 8.14. It's all the way through the Bible. And now the rest of the book of Hebrews will describe Christ as our high priest, what he's doing in the house, which we are collectively, his people, that house. Okay, so that just is maybe one verse. Remember, he's the high priest, we are the priest. We pattern ourselves after the high priest. So what is our function as a priest? And I love this one in Malachi. It is the duty of priests to teach the true knowledge of God. What is Christ doing in the heavenly sanctuary? Well, our duty is to teach the true knowledge of God. And, of course, we read on here in Malachi that the priests were not doing that. And in teaching a false knowledge of God, we read on, they have defiled the temple. Okay? Not necessarily a physical building somewhere. We are the temple. All right? So a true knowledge of God, I would say this is the essence of what Christ is doing in his high priestly ministry right now, is he's trying to settle us into this truth about who he is. All right? Now, I think if, if we're going to think of Hebrews and associate it with one word, uh, most people, I think, would say faith. Like Hebrews 11, that's the faith chapter, right? And as we talked about, faith, trust, believe have one Greek word, right? So trust is the point. And uh, so Paul begins and ends on this point. It's all about trust, faith. And so um, he, just, he says, when God made his solemn promise, and he's talking about the children that wandered through the, the wilderness for 40 years, they will never enter the land where I would have given them rest. Of whom was he speaking? Of those who rebelled. We see then that they were not able to enter the land because they did not believe. They did not trust. And Paul didn't just make this up. This is right from Numbers, where God said to Moses, how much longer will these people reject me? How much longer will they refuse to trust in me? So what God has wanted, our trust, is what he's wanted from the very beginning, even though I performed so many miracles among them. Okay, so they did not enter God's rest. So now God has offered us the promise that we may receive that rest he spoke about, which would be to enter into a trusting relationship with God. Let us take care then that none of you will be found to have failed to receive that promised rest. 
For we have heard the good news just as they did. Again, the good news, there was no good news until the cross, and now there's good news. Okay, there's been good news. Those people in the wilderness heard the good news. They heard the message, but it did them no good because when they heard it, they did not accept it with faith. They didn't trust in God. We who believe then do receive that rest which God promised. It is just as he said, I was angry and made a solemn promise. They will never enter the land where I would have given them rest. He said this even though his work had been finished from the time he created the world. For somewhere in the scriptures, and it's interesting that I think Paul, why would he word it this way? Doesn't he know where this is in the Bible? Hmm, somewhere in the scriptures, this is said about the seventh day. God rested on the seventh day from all his work. This same matter is spoken of again. They will never enter that land where I could have given them rest. Those who first heard the good news did not receive that rest because they did not believe. There are then others who are allowed to receive it. Okay, so to enter God's rest is to enter into a relationship, trusting relationship, which at its heart is based on a true knowledge of who he is. Let us then hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we have a great high priest who has gone into the very presence of God, Jesus, the Son of God. Our high priest is not one who cannot feel sympathy for our weaknesses. On the contrary, we have a high priest who is tempted in every way that we are, but did not sin. Let us have confidence then and approach God's throne where there is grace. There we will receive mercy and find grace to help us just when we need it. Now, our high priest is one who can feel sympathy for us and for our weakness. Um, do you think that God learned something through uh, the experience of living on earth? Do you think that... Um, God knew what it was like to be tempted, to suffer. And does he have sympathy for us? Because at one point, he didn't really know how difficult it was living down here. And all of the, um, you know, but it's, then he went back up to heaven and said, boy, it's hard to be good. And um, how, do you, how do we view this? Does God have more sympathy for us in our weakness now than he did prior to his life on earth? How would you read this? Do you think Jesus knows more about some things than the Father? And, you know, God shows so much emotion in the Old Testament, like in Hosea, when he describes his children going into captivity. You know, my heart churns within me. You know, great uh, emotion at the suffering that his uh, people are going through. But doesn't it help? I mean, we see God in human form, um, hungry, tired. You know, Father, take this cup away from me. Um, and so I think in, in his suffering and what he went through, boy, it brings us close to him as we see that God himself went through that. I guess the, the picture I was trying not to paint here is that, um, you know, let's say when our names come up for discussion or whatever, that uh, one member of the Godhead doesn't have much sympathy for us because he doesn't really know. You know, the Father is not omniscient. He doesn't really know. Of course he knows everything, right? It's, this is all, again, I would see for our benefit in us seeing that God, um, what he went through uh, in his suffering. Well, we understand rejection is one of the greatest pains people can experience. Mm -hmm. And so even if God did not 
live in a human in human form until Jesus, I mean, he certainly experienced a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. uh, now, we may not have seen it that way without Jesus coming and experiencing it, but it doesn't make it any less real for God. Right. Now, we say that Christ wasn't always tempted, just as we are. Uh, was he tempted in every way, as we are? Can you think of any temptations, maybe, that Christ didn't have, that we experience? <laughs> That's a good one, yeah. So, you know, did he, did he suffer? We are his children, I mean, you could know, look at it that way, and he saw, he saw the people around him, his disciples, as his children. Yeah. That's funny. Dorothy and I have talked about, uh, we'd like to see how Jesus would deal with uh, two and a four-year-old boys, you know, running around. But um, did Christ uh, have to go through addiction to heroin and how to overcome? Uh, I mean, couldn't we make a long list of us in our sin? How, you know, but, but I think uh, he, he did experience the basic things that we suffer with, the selfishness and, and all of those things, but not in, in every detail like that. Yes. Damaging things on, on our world, society, and interaction between each other is, is the desire for power and control yes. based in fear. And uh, you know, we certainly had temptation for power and control yeah. and had the power. Right. I mean, that's a greater temptation than what you or I might have. We yeah. don't really have power. You know, we may try to get it, but right. we don't have it. And isn't that just right on? Because what did Satan always, his temptation was always use your power. Use your power. Show a miracle. Um, and if, you know, and, and when you think about Christ and Gethsemane and the mob is coming to get him and um, how easy it would have been, you know, just to level them all. Of course he did. He said, I am. And they all fell down. But, uh, you know, and on the cross, just to just say, all of you be gone. You know, it would have taken no effort. But he never used his power in that way. Yes. You should say that. It was other-centered. He used his power for others, to love others. Yeah, don't you think that was for others? You know, the saying, I am, and they all collapse. Let me give you just a little bit of evidence. Are you sure you want to go on with this? And then Peter chops his ear off. Uh, and let me give you a little more evidence. I'm not upset with you. And he picks up the ear and puts it on. It was for others, even those kinds of things. I think exactly right. Well, now, uh, just in the interest of time here, I won't go through this in detail, but... Uh, Hebrews 5 through 10 describes Melchizedek and makes the case here that Jesus is a high priest on a new order. And it's interesting, Melchizedek means a king of righteousness. He was the king of Salem, which means he was the king of peace. Those are good names that, that fit with Jesus. And um, I'm going to go through this very quickly because I want to I summarize here the, uh, some main points in Hebrews. But he goes on to describe, we have this hope as an anchor for our lives. It is safe and sure and goes through the curtain of the heavenly temple into the inner sanctuary. Um, Paul makes this point so many times. Christ, in his role as high priest, he wants to bring us into the very presence of God. That's why I find it so fascinating that when Jesus died, the curtain was ripped and we see right into the most holy place. So on our behalf, Jesus has gone in there before us and has become a high priest forever in the priestly order of Melchizedek. And the reason he has to make this point here, he is going to make the point that this whole sacrificial system has been fulfilled. 
and that Jesus, who was not of the line of Levi, which is where the high priest line is supposed to come from, he was from the tribe of Judah, he's a different high priest. And so he goes on to describe, uh, maybe we won't read this here, but uh, that quoting Psalms, you will be a priest forever in the priestly order of Melchizedek. That is not of the line of Levi, but a new priest. The old rule then is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law of Moses could not make anything perfect. And now a better hope has been provided through which we come near to God. But Jesus became a priest by means of a vow. When God said to him, the Lord has made a solemn promise and will not take it back. You will be a priest forever. This difference then also makes Jesus the guarantee of a better covenant. Okay, and so what I want to hopefully understand here in the last few minutes is what is the better covenant that Jesus, as our high priest, brings us into. There was a long succession of priests because when a priest died, he could no longer serve. But Jesus lives forever, so he serves as a priest forever. That is why he is always able to save those who come to God through him. He can do this because he always lives and intercedes for them. And we spent such a long time talking about intercession and that the, the role of Jesus as our intercessor is ultimately to bring us in, bring us closer. His intercession is to bring us to God. And as evidence for that, go back, going back to this verse, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy. We'll find grace to help us when we need it. He wants to bring us in. He goes out, he dies, and in his high priestly role, he's to bring us into the most holy place, so to speak, which is face-to-face with God. Notice, I've been, Jesus' words, I've been speaking to you in parables, but the time is coming to give up parables and tell you plainly about the Father. When that time comes, you will make your requests in my own name, for I need make no promise to plead to you for the Father for you, For the Father himself loves you. And this is the language of intercession. I make no promise to plead to the Father for you. And the Goodspeed version, I do not promise to intercede with the Father for you. And so notice that here, intercession, and you know, Adventists have a unique understanding of intercession, which is that there will come a time when intercession is done. And we live without an intercessor. And I think it's done when it's accomplished its purpose, which is to bring us face-to-face with God. And at that point, there is no need for Jesus to intercede with us because we've come to see God is just like Jesus. The Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now we are in the immediate presence of God. And we're there because we realize that the Father himself loves you. So Christ is, is bringing us in. That's the function of his intercession. So if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, there would have been no need for a second one. But God finds fault with his people when he says, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will draw up a new covenant with the people of Israel. That's you and I. And with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. They were not faithful to the covenant I made with them, and so I paid no attention to them. Now, this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel in the days to come, says the Lord. Okay, what's the new covenant? I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. What does all law come down to? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love God. And that law of love will be written on our minds, on our hearts. 
I will be their God. They will be my people. None of them will have to teach their friends or tell their neighbors, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest. This is what Jesus is ultimately bringing us to. And uh, I was going to spend some time going through this here. Uh, I, I find all the symbolism, we talked about this in Leviticus, uh, very, very significant here. But uh, ultimately here, we are to be led through the curtain and into the very presence of God. And it's fascinating here that in this box, what's in there? The Ten Commandments. Law written on the heart. What's the lid? Jesus, the Hilasterion. And then the Shekinah glory uh, that we are to be brought into the immediate presence of God through Christ's high priestly ministry. But now, seeing that that first tabernacle was a parable, a visible symbol or type or picture of the present age, in its gifts and sacrifice are offered and yet are incapable of perfecting the conscience or of cleansing and renewing the inner man of the worshiper. Hey, there it is again. What God wants to do is to change us, cleanse us, purify, perfect the conscience. How much more is accomplished by the blood of Christ? Through the eternal spirit, he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice to God. His blood will purify our consciences. Notice, what Jesus said is really too true, that the blood, his body, it is to be ingested. Unless you drink my blood, eat my flesh, it's to be internalized this truth about God, to purify our consciences from useless rituals so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the one who arranges a new covenant, which again is to have the law written on the heart. That is why the first covenant went into effect only with the use of blood. First, Moses proclaimed to the people all the commandments as set forth in the law. Then he took the blood of bulls and goats, mixed it with water and sprinkled it on the book of the law, and all the people using a sprig of hyssop and some red wool. He said, this is the blood which seals the covenant that God has commanded you to obey. Now, Moses said that, but what did Jesus say in the upper room? This is my blood that seals the covenant. Isn't that interesting? In the same way, Moses also sprinkled the blood on the sacred tent and over all the things used in worship. Indeed, according to the law, almost everything is purified by blood. And sins are not for, are forgiven only if blood is poured out. Now, I put this in, a, in an older translation because the wording here might be more familiar. This is the American Standard Version. And according to the law, I may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And apart from shedding of blood, there is no remission. How do we understand this verse? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Based on what he's been saying all the way along. He wants to change our way of thinking and acting, that we have the law written on the heart, that we love one another. Um, how do we understand that? Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Do we have any advantages, medical people, in understanding remission? What happens if you have someone with cancer, breast cancer, let's say, and uh, is treated with chemotherapy and radiation? and comes back to see you 10 years later, my cancer's in remission. Okay, have you pardoned the cancer? No, it's gone into remission. There's a change. Okay, so I, I see here in the context of what Paul is saying all the way up, that we have a new heart, a right spirit, that we are purified in thought, that we have the law of love written on the heart, that without 
everything that Jesus did, this great sacrifice, that our selfish, sinful hearts would not go into remission. Okay, I like to describe it that way. But notice, what was the point of the cleansing of the sanctuary in the Old Testament? Here it is in Leviticus. On that, Leviticus 16 describes the cleansing of the sanctuary. On that day, the ritual is to be performed to purify them from all their sins so that they will be ritually clean. And going through what the high priest did, what's the point? That the tent, the altar, the priests, and all the people of the community, that they would be purified. These regulations are to be observed for all time to come. This ritual must be performed once a year to purify the people. It is to purify, to cleanse, to change. Now, a very important passage here in Romans 10. Um, The Jewish law is not a full and faithful model of the real things. It's only a faint outline of the good things to come. The same sacrifices are offered forever, year after year. How can the law then, by means of these sacrifices, make perfect the people who come to God? Again, what is the point? To make perfect the people who come to God. If the people worshiping God had really been purified from their sins, they would not feel guilty of sin anymore, and all sacrifices would stop. As it is, however, the sacrifices serve year after year for what purpose? To remind people of their sins. For the bulls of blood and goats can never take away sins. Okay, we talk about the sacrificial system pointing forward to Jesus, which it did. Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system But notice how Paul describes, what's the purpose of the sacrifices year after year? To remind people of their sins. And if you are like uh, Adam, um, having to kill that first lamb, I mean, uh, what a disgusting, revolting thing. Would you not think, would it not make the impression that, um, boy, you know, the sin problem is extremely serious. This is a very disgusting thing. You have to kill an animal. And so it was to make a powerful point to remind people of their sins. Now, does the death of Jesus remind us of the consequence of sin? Um, Yes, it does. We won't go into that. But uh, the sacrificial system brings us to God, but it also shows us the devastating consequences of sin. Well, we'll come up here to the climax in Hebrews 11, but uh, just a little bit more in Hebrews 10. Christ, however, offered one sacrifice for sins, an offering that is effective forever. And then he sat down at the right side of God. There he now waits until God puts his enemies as a footstool under his feet. With one sacrifice, then, he has made perfect forever those who are purified from sin. And the Holy Spirit also gives us his witness. First he says, this is the covenant that I will make with them in the days to come, says the Lord. And Paul comes back, he reemphasizes the point. This is what it's all about. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. That's why Jesus came. That's what he's doing now, is to recreate in us a new heart and a right spirit. We have then, my friends, complete freedom to go into the most holy place by means of the death of Jesus. And again, how by means of the death of Jesus, uh, when we see God for who he is, and we really believe If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I mean, we have complete freedom. We see there is no need to be afraid of God. We want to enter in right into that most holy place, into God's presence. He opened for us a new way, a living way, through the curtain. That is, through his own body. 
Notice, that's where we're supposed to be. We have a great priest in charge of the house of God, so let us come near to God with a sincere heart and a sure faith, with hearts that have been purified from a guilty conscience and with bodies washed with clean water. Let us hold on firmly to the hope we profess because we can trust God to keep his promises. Now, um, I realize uh, I won't go through these next couple slides here, but maybe just think about there are a couple places here in Hebrews after this where Paul says, boy, if you reject this truth, there's no more sacrifice for you. There's one chance. Um, anyway, we'll come back to this uh, later because if we don't just say something about Hebrews 11, I think we almost miss the whole point. So Paul comes down here at the end of Hebrews 10. We are not people who turn back and are lost. Instead, we have faith. We trust and are saved. And then you know the famous chapter here in Hebrews 11, the faith chapter. And he goes through uh, people who trusted in God. Abel, okay, that, there's a good one. Enoch, certainly a good example. Uh, Noah, well, now as we go on here, we notice... Well, some interesting things. Noah, of course, we know had a little problem with alcohol, apparently, after the flood. Abraham, okay, he trusted in God, but how many times did he say about his wife, well, she's my sister. And Isaac, who had favorites of his sons. And Jacob, we could talk a long time about, what does the name Jacob means? Heal. And uh, how he did so many deceptive things. Okay, Joseph is a good example. Moses, well, he struck the rock, but he's a good example. But then he goes on, the prostitute Rahab. Couldn't he leave out the word prostitute there? Just say Rahab. The prostitute Rahab. A good example. Well, she lied about the uh, spies, but here she is. A, an example of a woman of faith. But now, what is really amazing, it's almost like Paul just runs out of time. And so he says, okay, should I go on? There isn't enough time for me to speak of Gideon. Is he a man of great faith? Well, God recognizes him as a man of great faith. But remember, God came, and what did Gideon say? Show me a miracle that I might believe. And then he went and cooked the goat, and then God burned it up. And then he wasn't sure, so he said, give me a wet fleece and dry ground. And then he got to thinking that, you know, dew naturally would go into the fleece. So, uh, can I have it the other way around? Can I have a dry fleece and a wet ground? A man of faith. But notice that God recognized the faith that he did have. And so he's in here in Hebrews 11. Barak, Samson, I have to put Samson's dying words. Then Samson prayed, Sovereign Lord, please remember me. Please, God, give me my strength just one more time so that with this one blow, I can get even with the Philistines for putting out my two eyes. Um, you know, But he, God recognized the trust that Samson did have. Jephthah, oh my, the horrible, you know the story of Jephthah, right? Where he carried through with his vow, horrible vow with his daughter. David, well, we know about the life of David, but he did trust God. Samuel and the prophets. So what point is Paul trying to make here? It is, if you trust God, and let me give you some examples of some people who trusted God, even Samson, that that, that is what God wants. That's the bottom line. Do you trust God? And these people... I would say we'll arrive in heaven with a lot to learn, won't they? And that's Paul's point here at the end. What a record all of these have won by their faith. Yet they did not receive what God had promised because God had decided on an even better plan for us. His purpose was that only in company with us would they be made perfect. 
So notice, look at all the knowledge that you and I have that Samson didn't have. The knowledge about who God is based on his life and death. And Samson will arrive, and, and I don't know if God will tell him or if you and I will, will go up and tell him the story or, or exactly how it happens. But these people, you know, they had some trust in God based on the little knowledge that was given to them. And God said, great, that's all that I ask. But we, what do we have? I mean, we have an incredible record of uh, who God is. We have much better reason to trust than, uh, than these people in the Old Testament. And I think that's what Paul is saying, that in company with us, would they be made perfect? So the death, the sacrifice of Christ was absolutely necessary for Samson, Jephthah, and, and all these people in the Old Testament as well. Now, in, in the Thursday uh, Bible study, uh, when we go through Ephesians, I'm going to parallel that with Hebrews 12. So we actually will finish uh, the book of, of uh, Hebrews. And, um, boy, so much more we could say, but I'm, I'm sorry to go over, so let's pray here in conclusion. Dear Father, certainly we have every reason to trust you. And um, amazing that even these people like Gideon, who would uh, go off with just a few hundred men to attack a large company of people. But we see those, those men and women did have faith. But yet we should have so much more faith. And so please help us to allow you to perform your work of intercession in each and every one of us, that you would bring us closer and closer, and that the veils of lies and distortions would slowly melt away, and that we, we would be brought into your very presence, and that we would see that... The Father himself loves us. Amen.